Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief here at Modern Retail. And this week, we have John McAdlow. He's the CEO of Impossible Kicks, which is a, a sneaker resale. They have many stores. I believe they also sell online. I want to go into all things sneaker resale because it's a really fascinating space right now. There was a huge boom. Now there are varying degrees of reports about what's the future of it, although I know John just spoke to some outlets a few days ago about how some surprising shoes are still very in high demand in the resale market. I want to hit all of that. John, how are you doing? Thanks so much for joining me. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. This is awesome. Impossible Kicks is relatively new. You started in 2020, right? No, we started actually in 2021, in January 2021. So we're uh, a relatively young company. <laughs> wow, wow. So what were you doing before? Were you Have you always been in the sneaker space or was this uh, a new foray for you? No, actually how the company was uh, founded is I was in the auto industry for 23 years. Um, on, on the franchise side, I worked for, uh, you know, for, for Nissan and General Motors and, you know, I own car dealerships. And I got out of it at the beginning of COVID. And my younger brother was always into sneaker reselling. And uh, he approached me in December of 2020 and said, hey, I want to open up this sneaker resale store, but I have no idea about business. I want you to help me run it. And so that's, <laughs> that, that, that is my introduction to the sneaker industry. <laughs> um, is selling sneakers the same as selling cars? Uh, we've been extremely successful um, with it just because we kind of set up all of our sneaker stores kind of like a car dealership and we train the associates like, you know, essentially salesmen from, from a car dealership. So it's, you know, kind of meet and greet, you know, presentation and, you know, it's one of one of the key store success there. So, Got it. So for, for those who don't know, can you just give sort of the the elevator pitch of Impossible Kicks? And I mean, you've grown pretty quickly over the last, you know, two years. So just walk me through all that right now. Yeah. Uh, so we started, uh, our first day of business was January 30th, 2021. Uh, it was founded by, by my brother, Wayne McCadlow, and I came in to run the company. And we had one brick and mortar store that was uh, 1,600 square feet. And uh, our first year in business, we did about 14 million in sales. And just uh, from that store? No, we ended up opening seven, uh, seven stores for uh, calendar okay. year 2021. Yeah. And uh, in 2022, we opened up another 10 stores. So we finished uh, 2022 with 17 stores, which, uh, you know, at the end of 2021, we were already the largest uh, by footprint, uh, you know, brick and mortar uh, resale concept in the country. And uh, at the end of 2022, we finished with uh, almost 50 million in gross sales um, for 2022, with 17 locations. And for uh, 2023, we expect to open another seven or eight stores, and we will end up with uh, probably about 100 million dollars in in sales this year. So this is going to be very exciting. <laughs> wow, that is an insane uh, an insane rise. So the sales that you have are great. Opening so many stores so quickly. What made you do that as opposed to say going the online only route? Because opening a store is very capital intensive. And so how how do the economics work out with that? Well, you know, there's some fantastic companies that are, are DTC with with resale. You know, StockX, Go, you know, Stadium Goods are all fantastic companies. So when we realized, we, hey, we're going to be the alpha in brick and mortar, we knew that we had to, A, raise money, and B, move as fast as possible. So we were very lucky in the very beginning. Um, we had an angel investor that really believed in us, uh, and we were able to raise a little more than a million dollars uh, within the first 90 days of opening the business, which is was just kind of a, a gift, you know, it was kind of like some divine intervention. And uh, 
you know, the gentleman was a very, very smart, retired, you know, person. He retired in his 30s, you know, selling his company for, you know, for nine figures. And uh, we had a lot of great mentorship through, uh, you know, that first year. And uh, by another form of inter- intervention, uh, right around Christmas time of 2021, we uh, were in my Palm Beach store and a gentleman came in and was very impressed with the business and said, hey, you know, I own a private equity fund. Uh, if you're ever looking to raise money, please let us know. And uh, that kind of dovetailed into us raising, uh, you know, nearly $8 million last year. So, you know, we, we've raised a lot of money over the last, uh, you know, year and a half. And that's what really gave us the gasoline to really put some accelerant on this. It seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it also, it seemed like you were in the right space and probably in the right time business model wise in terms of at the end of 2020, 2021, sneaker resale was really booming back then. Um, and then also uh, for for physical retail, I imagine real estate prices were a little bit more affordable then than they are now. Did that help sort of you, you you sort of get off the ground given those things or was did would it have worked no matter the time? No, we got very lucky. We got in at the right time because sneaker reselling in a brick and mortar setting had just started to get popular. So we knew it was the right time and we had to strike while the iron was hot. Uh, so we literally opened up a new store essentially almost every 40 days for the last two years um, because other concepts were coming forward. You know, this was a new thing. So people were coming in, opening up stores, one-offs, and the malls and developers kind of took a step back and said, wow, look at this mature team of people. They have great financial backing. They have a great model. They have very mature management. Uh, and we've ultimately become the first pick in brick and mortar reselling. So it was just kind of, uh, you know, a bunch of variables and everything lined up perfect. And and we've just been, you know, lucky and in turn, it made us very successful. So walk me through the, the markets and the types of stores you have. So you mentioned malls. Are you guys predominantly in malls? Is that what you're seeking out? And where, how do you decide which areas you, are most important for you to open? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so malls are, are predominant you know, um, outlet for, for selling. Obviously we have an app and an online store, which is fantastic, but you know, our main things are brick and mortars at malls. So we started out in West Hartford, Connecticut, which I know is kind of nothing really interesting comes out of Connecticut. <laughs> I know West Hartford very well. I'm from Massachusetts. Um, there are definitely malls there. I've, I've been to the malls there. Yeah. So, you know, so, so it's a, it's a pretty much our best mall in Connecticut. And, uh, we started there and it, you know, we advertised heavy. You know, I have a really good at marketing and advertising background from being in the auto industry. And uh, we had about a, a two and a half hour wait to get into our first store, which was just phenomenal. So we kind of took that model and, uh, you know, Taubman Properties, which has been, uh, you know, a great advocate for us. And, you know, they really stood by us. Um, they had the store in Short Hills, which is, you know, one of the top malls in the country, top 10 malls. So they said, we would like you to open up in Short Hills. So then we opened up in Short Hills, New Jersey, and that was another huge success. And then uh, <laughs> very co- coincidentally, uh, you know, <laughs> this, this, this is a very good story. A lot of people don't know this story. But then we opened up in Orlando. And a lot of people say, why did you go from New Jersey all the way to Orlando? Well, there was an investor at the time before this angel investor came aboard and said, hey, listen, uh, I really want to get involved and, you know, put up the money and open up a store um, and use the name. And, you know, obviously we were only a company that was open, you know, 75 days at that point. We really didn't know much what we were doing. Um, 
So he said, yeah, great, let's do it. And, you know, we went down there and he was all excited and he was ready to go and ready to fund us. And my brother goes off and signs a lease and gets everything done, which is that international drive, which is international premium outlets, which is one of our most successful stores. And he said, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm not going to do it. Thanks. <laughs> so we were great. like, oh, geez. And that's where we, we, we searched, you know, we sought out that angel investor and uh, he came forward with some money and, and we opened up in Orlando. And that was, a, that's actually, it was a pretty cool story because we were, we had no money. We were sleeping out of a U-Haul truck, uh, <laughs> sleeping out of a U-Haul truck, you know, uh, you know, eating McDonald's every day, which, which was a pretty interesting story. So we opened up there, we were extremely successful. And, uh, then we opened up at Palm Beach, which was um, in the Gardens Mall, which is a Forbes property. Um, Andrew Forbes and his father, Nate, have been in- insanely generous to us. Um, so that got us into the Forbes portfolio and International Drive was the Simons portfolio. And uh, we went from Palm Beach to, um, to to Tampa. Then we opened up an international plaza, which was great. So we started staying in the Florida market because we had infrastructure that was close. Then we opened uh, in Beverly Hills, which was the Beverly Center. Taubman gave us a mall out there. And, you know, uh, that that was a very difficult opening because we had no infrastructure. So we had to get everything and everybody across the country. And a lot of people don't understand that the staffing was a, a challenge in itself because you're not going to literally fly out to Beverly Hills and you know, meet some people and develop infrastructure, people that you trust, because naturally it's it's a difficult business to run. So what we were doing was we were going through our stores and finding people in, let's say, Connecticut or New Jersey or some of our Florida stores and saying, hey, listen, do you want us to relocate you to Beverly Hills to to run a store? And, <laughs> and, and you know, they were getting up and moving to, uh, you know, all, all across the country to work for us, which was fascinating and, and, and fun in itself. So then we opened up in Beverly Hills, and that was was very successful. And then we opened up in Denver. Um, in Denver was our last one. So, um, you know, then from there, we've been able to kind of, you know, get get into markets. And we kind of land in a market, and we spread from that market after we have the infrastructure. And then last year, we did another store in Orlando, in Mall of Millennia. Then we did... Um, Somerset Collection, which is right outside of Detroit in Troy, Michigan, which is another Forbes property. Um, that was fantastic. Then we opened in Miami and Dolphin Mall. Um, then we opened in, um, geez, I forget. There's been so many openings. Um, yeah, you, it's wild that you remember all of these so linearly. I yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I actually can remember a lot of the opening dates. You know, it's one thing you never forget is what are the grand opening numbers. You, you, you never yeah. forget those. You remember them almost at a time. Um, and then we opened up, yeah, oh, then we opened up Great Lakes, uh, which is in Auburn Hills, uh, Michigan, which is an outlet center. Um, and then we opened up in um, Woodbury Commons, which is in New York. If you're, you know, if, if you know New York, that you yeah. know, that's, that's a fantastic, fantastic, that's one of our best stores. We had Austin, Texas, which I forgot. We had San Marcos, Texas. And then um, we had, um, what was the last one? Uh, Vineland in Orlando. So we have three stores in Orlando. Those are, believe it or not, Orlando's a phenomenal market for us. So Wow. So at the beginning, when you were introing yourself to these mall landlords, given that this was 2021 and pretty much, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like a lot of malls then were just trying to find ways to bring people back into stores. Was that how, what were sort of the negotiations like? Are the real estate deals that you got then the same that you are getting now? Or sort of how has it worked when it was such a weird time for physical retail? 
Well, you know, you know, the deals were never really cheap, cheap, which a lot of people think is, you know, the mall companies are extremely smart. So they put guardrails a lot of, around a lot of things. So they start you off with, you know, a relatively small base and, you know, they go upon your sales. And obviously, you know, we count every cent that we that goes through the register or comes through the building. So naturally, they might say, hey, you know, there's a, you know, a, a, you know, a $10,000, uh, you know, base rent, which seems cheap and attractive. But, you know, if you do X amount of dollars, it scales to this much, you know, and we've always, you know, scaled extremely beyond our, our, our base breakpoint. So uh, it was always favorable to them. So when we went into a lot of the malls, which a lot of people don't know is probably about 85% of all the resale stores out there are temporary stores still. The malls are still kind of trying to see like, hey, do we like this? Is this for us? Do we want this in our portfolio permanently? And all of my leases are permanent because they said, hey, Great infrastructure, great build-outs, well-capitalized, you know, we can, you know, we really want to go with this. So, um, you know, when, when we went to the permanent deals, it was it was a long time at the negotiating table because they saw us doing so well. <laughs> got it, but, got uh, it. But, but to answer your question, there really wasn't necessarily a deal deal um, for, for any of the centers that we went in. It was all pretty competitive. How does, you know, given that you're venture-backed, you have some PE money, um, how does profitability fit into this, specifically with the store structure? Do stores have to reach a certain amount of sales so that they, they're each profitable in their own right? Or are they? does you know one really well-performing Orlando store lift the moat of Denver that's not doing as well? How do you think about all that? Well, you know, we've gotten so big. You know, we started with three employees, and now we have, I think it's 215. You know, on a consolidated basis, you know, um, the, the, the box retail is extremely profitable as a whole. Um, you know, obviously what we've done is we've grown into such a big company with the e-commerce and in our back-end part of the business because, you know, we brought all of our accounting in-house and, um, you know, we have audited financials every year. So obviously that brings a whole nother layer to the business. Um, but yeah, the, the brick and mortar model is, you know, is extremely profitable. Um, and, you know, we look for all of them to hit certain objectives each month and naturally being in the auto industry, you know, we really scale those numbers depending on what time of the year is, what the operator talent is, what their st- staff structure is like. And uh, I have to say for a group of young professionals, these, I'll call them kids because I'm double most of their age, <laughs> they, they do a fantastic job of hitting their objectives and, and really managing their stores um, on a consolidated basis. So it's 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 been fantastic. So we've, we've had no problem there where, uh, where a lot of people don't realize that companies – like, um, you know, I'm not trying to speak out of school here, like StockX, GOAT, Stadium Goods, that those models are not profitable, you know, where they raise a lot of money and they have strategics that pump a lot of capital into them. But the model on a consolidated basis is not profitable. And, you know, that's a very, very scary thing because, you know, we're looking at companies that are in the same field. Like, let's look at the real real, which burns $100 million a quarter in cash. And they're they're closing all of their retail locations to, to save capital where, you know, we have you know, audits from Banker Tilly and, you know, Q of E's that, that show, hey, it, it is profitable. You just have to do it the right way. <laughs> so what, so then what are you doing correctly that the real, real and StockX are doing not correct? Well, we built the business backwards and it was literally by accident. You know, we didn't think that, hey, we would develop a, uh, a very successful, profitable brick and mortar concept 
and then back into the e-commerce. Because a lot of times, you know, let's look at if you would want to build a company that's similar to StockX. What do you got to do? Okay, well, I got to go buy warehouses and then I got to buy um, infrastructure for the warehouse, you know, furniture and fixtures. And then I got to, you know, advertise to get all these shoes in. And I got to hire all these employees. Okay, now you check your first shoe and you make $20. Well, you know, and, and what, how much cash did you have to raise and what is your, your return rate that you have to pay that money back, et cetera, where we really started in a generated cash forward. You know, you, 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 you establish your model, you invest your capital and, and, it, and it generates cash immediately, you know, and we've been very successful as, you know, as of, you know, this calendar date, we have, we have no debt. We were able to either, you know, self-fund, yeah, and, and bring in, you know, venture capital to the extent where we, we planned efficiently. Um, you know, our CFO is fantastic. He, he handles all of that. He came from, uh, from Verizon and he's just uh, amazing. And we just had really good financial planning and, uh, you know, we set up a very mature board, uh, and we just made all the right plays. And so now we don't have to worry about building our online platform because we already have all the infrastructure in place that's profitable that we deploy out of. So there's really no scaling cost or really no other four and one time costs where you're going to say, well, hey, we need to raise another, you know, 10 or $15 million to adapt this e-com platform. We just have our you know, variable expenses each month, like advertising and, you know, maybe some, you know, uh, you know, new infrastructure costs for, you know, online, um, you know, web development, but really there's nothing crazy that's going to really drive any kind of crazy costs where we have to, you know, go negative for a long time before it shows profitability. All right. We're going to take a quick break right now. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. When did you start expanding into e-com? And are you using your stores for fulfillment? Is that how it works? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty interesting uh, platform and, and concept on how we did it is uh, we launched in September. We had a couple soft launches in June and beta launches. Um, we, we launched it very slow because there's a lot of fraud in our um, in our field of work, <laughs> you know? Um, so we got all the processing right, all the deployment right, and we launched in September with our first month really being in October. And we have software that actually um, will ping, let's say you live in, you know, West Hartford, Connecticut, and, you know, you, you, you purchase a shoe. What'll happen is it'll ping my West Hartford store to see if it has the inventory. If not, it'll ping my New Jersey store. And then it'll keep pinging the store closest to that zip code until that item fulfills. And then it'll ship from that store and we ship everything same day. So, yeah, that's another good thing is uh, if a lot of people have ordered sneakers online, they know it's a long turnaround time. It could be anywhere from a week to three weeks to get your product. With us, typically we're two to four days at the very, very latest, depending on where it ships from uh, in the country. So, um but yeah, to answer your question, everything gets deployed out of the stores. Um, sometimes if you get lucky and the product is, you know, in the store that's closest to your zip code, uh, you get it in a day, two days. So it's, it's fast. What is the current breakdown revenue-wise? Like how quickly has e-com uh, grown or is in-store still your bread and butter in terms of share of uh, revenue? Yeah, so now that we feel, you know, we, you know, we just hired an e-commerce director from Hey Dude, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the brand, but uh, he developed all their e-commerce infrastructure from 2015 to 2021 when they sold to Crocs for... And then they sold, yeah. <laughs> yeah, two and a half Trigged billion. a lot of money. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you know, we we were lucky enough to bring him him on board. And he just started uh, the 1st of January. So this is our first full court press. Um, currently right now, our online sales are only about 10% of revenue. 
Um, and that's not bad considering the sheer volume that we do sell. Um, you know, we're looking to get up somewhere in the, the 12 to $14 million in e-com revenue this year. Um, and people still really like the experience of the brick and mortar, you know, even though that e-com is great and it, it, it's, it's really super efficient, everybody still likes to come in and touch it and put their foot in it and make sure it fits and see the colors. Um, and it really brings a lot of the sneakerheads in that we're really nervous to shop on some of the current online platforms. But um, but no, to answer your question, we're, we're about 5% right now, and we're hoping that it's going to pretty much increase to you know anywhere between 15 to 20% by the end of the year. Got it, got it. Can you talk, because you mentioned how your industry is filled with a lot of fraud, um, which is something that we've I've looked into a lot. It's a, a wild west in terms of all that stuff. H- yeah. How do you go about sourcing? Like, what, what's your primary source? How do you deal with authentication? How does it all work? All right. So th- this is this is a very good one. And I think we've, you know, kind of come up with one of the best processes in the industry. So what we do is there are wholesalers. There are people that go out and buy up every shoe that's available in the market. And whether it be from raffles, from people coming, you know, in off the street or whatnot. And so we'll call them these these wholesale resellers. And they have quantity anywhere from 100 pairs to thousands of pairs. And it's very nice because us as a company, we consume and sell not just, you know, 10, 20, 100 pairs of a sneaker. We sell thousands of it. So we need a lot of product. So what we do is we have an agreement with the wholesale reseller that they are not only certifying that it's authentic, but we are financially tying them to uh, and legally tying them that it is authentic and if we get any product, which we double check, by the way, that is, you know, unauthentic or fake, that they are fined an insane amount of money per item. So they don't want to, and you got to remember, if they're dealing in thousands of pairs, they have a million dollar plus business. They don't want to get themselves legally wrapped up in legal fees and fines and penalties of tens of thousands of dollars by not thoroughly checking their product. Then what we do is it comes into our locations, our retail locations, our managers and assistant managers recheck everything. And then before the item goes out, it's put through an AI software called CheckCheck and it quadruple checks it essentially. So um, there's many lines of defense as opposed to where some of the other models, which I mean, I'm not going to knock them. They're great models. You have one person, the shoe comes in from a guy you don't even know. And they look at it for 35 seconds, they give their scouts on her best opinion, and then they pass it or deny it. Um, and I don't think that's enough for a lot of consumers. So we have, you know, several different methods. And there has been times that we've caught products going down the line that have been unauthentic. Um, and so we really, you know, take that extra step. It's a little more expensive, but we make sure that the consumer gets nothing but an absolute authentic item. By focusing predominantly, or it sounds like completely on these wholesalers, does that whittle down the type of inventory you have? Like you don't, you don't get the rarest of shoes that one guy bought 20 years ago? Um, like how does that work? Oh, no, you know, that doesn't really hurt us at all because we do have incidences. Um, there's actually an article about us on Fox. We bought a, a $1.3 million sneaker collection from somebody. And um, when we buy a package like that, and I mean, that was $100,000 pairs of, uh, you know, Jordan Dornbecker ones, one of one, or, you know, Paris SB, you know, City Pack Dunk Lows, you know, that were $80,000 a pair. Um, 
What we do is we have those shipped into a centralized location and we have multiple managers that will fly in and we all take a crack at authenticating it and with AI as well. So, you know, we, we really, you know, double and quadruple check everything. But no, we're, we're able to pretty much buy everything because we have the boots on the ground and we're considered one of the bigger whales in the industry. And it's easier to get product and it's easier to get paid that we usually get first crack at a lot of this stuff. So, so yeah, so even on, on the one-offs or the super rare stuff, we, we still get a, you know, get our, our, our fair take at that. Got it. Uh, are you thinking about expanding? I know I was on the website and I know that you have some apparel on there, but are sneakers and footwear always going to be the bread and butter? Or do you think that this is going to expand outward at all? No. So we do do apparel and accessories. So we do about 85% of sneaker, sneaker sales, 15% apparel. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we carry brands like, you know, Bape, Essentials, Antisocial, Chrome Hearts, Gallery, you know, Spider, you know, Hellstar, a lot of, you know, some of the, the staple brands and a lot of the up-and-coming brands. And everybody always likes to get a fit with their sneakers. But we actually are expanding into luxury watches, which is going to launch Probably within the next 30 days, we've been working on it for the last five months. And on our website, you're going to be able to get, you know, a, you know, uh, you know, Rolex AP paddock, uh, you know, Vacheron, you know, Richard Mill. So if you really want, uh, you know, a Rolex Hulk, you're going to be able to get it from the company that we're collabing with. And their authentication process is phenomenal. Actually, you get a video of them authenticating it, packaging it up, and the video going right to the UPS driver, which is Really, really cool. <laughs> you know, um, so that's going to be another part of our business that we launch within the next 30 days. So you're going to be able to get luxury watches, you know, streetwear, luxury clothing, and, uh, you know, really high, highly sought after sneakers as well. Will the watches be e-com only or will you introduce them to stores? So we have, loca- we have uh, plans to roll them out in five uh, locations. Um, you know, two of them that we're going to launch first is our Connecticut store in West Hartford and our store at Millennium Mall in Orlando. So um, those are two that we're going to launch first, and it looks like we're probably going to end up moving into Austin, Ala Moana, which we're opening in Hawaii, and probably our Denver location. Got it, got it. Um, I wanted to zoom out a little bit because we're, we've been talking for a while and we're almost running out of time, but there, there have been headlines over the last, let's say, six months that, you know, sneaker resale reached its peak maybe about a year ago with the pandemic and, you know, when the economy was booming more and now it's kind of dipping. Are you seeing that personally or like, what are you, what are your thoughts on sort of the future of sneaker resale as an overall market and not just your business? No, um, you know, we haven't seen really any decline at all. We still see that it's just as strong as ever. Uh, it's, it's essentially like the stock market, you know, for a lot of people that remember the dot-com boom, you could buy any stock and it went up. Or you can remember when crypto was really popular in 2020, you could buy any coin and it went up. Uh, back in 2020 and 2021, you could literally buy any sneaker and it went up and there was really no skill in it. Now you really have to take a step back when you purchase a sneaker and say, is it a popular colorway? Is it going to turn fast? You know, um, is the market really going to want this? So it kind of went from, Hey, I could buy anything and make money on it to, I really have to be picky and choosy to, to, you know, pick the right styles that the consumers are going to want, which is going to turn fast. And that's really the only difference that people have seen. So, you know, when people were talking about, Oh, you know, my 13 year old kid made, you know, 10 grand is first month sneaker reselling. Like, yeah, it was easy back in, you know, in, in 20, in the year 2000, you could buy any dot com stock and make, you know, 10,000% on your money, you know, but now you can't do that nowadays. <laughs> you just have to be smarter on what your investments are because essentially they all are like stocks and they all are like investments. So at this point, you just have to be smarter at picking them.
So are your, and I should have asked this earlier, but this leads perfectly, like the Target demo, you mentioned that there were people waiting outside for the West Hartford store. I imagine in my head that these are, there are a lot of teens or, you know, younger people who are interested in buying, you know, buying these resold shoes because they're cool. But are, are who are the people that are predominantly buying them? Are they people that are investment conscious or who, who are you seeing? Um, you know, our model pretty much sells, I call it like the fashionistas. You know, we do have a lot of investment grade, but the people who want to come in, 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 in a mall, you're, you're going for an outfit. So you get an outfit and then obviously you finish it off with a good pair of sneakers. So there was a lot of synergy there with the, with the centers. Um, very few people come in and buy something investment grade. I mean, we do sell a lot of them, but I would say probably about 90% of our sales of people get it and they want to wear it with a certain fit or a certain outfit or a costume or, or, or whatever it might be. So, um, but our demographic is, you know, we, we do start as young as I would say, like, you know, sneakerheads is eight, nine years old. And, you know, we've seen people in their fifties who come in and say, Hey, I want a trendy pair of sneakers to fit in with my kids. And you got to remember people in their fifties, remember waiting outside and seeing the Jordan one released in 1985. And they're reliving some of that nostalgia because it's in again. I mentioned this in the intro, so I have to bring it up. But you, you said in an interview, I want to say this week or last week, that Yeezys are, are still popular shoes. You're, you're still seeing people buy them despite everything that's happened? Oh, yeah. You know, they've, um, they've, you know, our sales have increased 30%. It's getting more and more difficult to get our hands on them because they're, <laughs> you know, it's been about four months. And uh, a lot of people don't realize that even that sneaker is associated with Kanye. You know, you'll really? have people who come in and say, I want a comfortable you know, fashionable, you know, running shoe or something I can wear on a day-to-day basis. And they see it and they go, great, I'll take this. They don't ask if it's a Yeezy. I mean, there are people that are, are fans that that know that it's a sneaker and go after it. But a lot of people purchase the sneaker just based upon the looks and the comfort of it alone. So it's not something that, you know, people know that's definitely, you know, parallel and associated with him. Got it. Got it. So we're just about out of time, but I wanted to ask just about, you mentioned that there are, that you have a bunch of store opening plans and, and a few uh, expansions with the watch resale, all that. What are, what are your major, I guess, priorities for the year to come? And where do you see the company expanding in the next two years, would you say? So we have seven locations this year with, you know, Hawaii being one of them. We have one store in Vegas. We have a store in Sacramento, a store in Columbus, Ohio, um, another store in Florida. And for 2024, we're opening a flagship store at the Venetian in um, uh, in Las Vegas. Yeah, it's going to be a really, really big store. We're beyond thrilled about that one. Uh, we actually are really close to making a deal in Sydney, Australia, to give us our first international uh, footprint, which we're, we're thrilled about. But we feel that kind of critical mass for the United States is anywhere between 50 and 60 locations. We don't feel that you know someone have, should have to travel to LA or Vegas to get that same experience. We feel that, hey, if you live in Columbus, Ohio, you should have that experience. We feel that if you live in, you know, you know, Nashville, Tennessee, you should be able to have that experience. You know, uh, you know, people made fun of us for going to Nashville saying, oh, it's all cowboy boots, but it's such an emerging market that it's one of our best performing stores. I can't tell you how many sneakers we sell out of that store. <laughs> but yeah, no, we're, we're really excited. You know, bigger markets, we have all the secondary markets tied down, and now we're really looking to, you know, have an international footprint, which we're excited about. Amazing. John, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Appreciate you joining. No, I appreciate you guys. Anything you need, I'm always here for you. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week. Bye.